He said, you have created for yourself a mythical composite woman out of these good attributes. And that's what you expect yourself to be. That's when I named it. I suspect it's very human to compare ourselves to others. Not always bad, but constant comparison can be an incredible bondage, born of pride, corrosive and destructive to ourselves and others, a thief of joy, an enemy of relationships. Our guest today has spent a lifetime weeding through the challenges of constant comparison and has found great freedom. And she freely shares her story of pain and joy and what she's learned in her new book. Her name is Rochelle Parham. The book is called Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison. This is a book I've been waiting for for years. I've watched Rochelle pour herself into this project And it is with great delight that I offer to you this first in a two-part conversation we had. Now this month, we're exploring the evangelical tradition, and you'll find Rochelle's story firmly rooted in this tradition, as biblical concepts set the entire framework for helping us navigate the common challenge of comparing ourselves to others. My name is Nathan Foster. And welcome to the Runavari podcast. Rochella, I have been waiting three, four years for this moment. Oh, wow. Is that right? Three years for sure. Three mm-hmm. years? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember taking a walk with you in Colorado at um, Mount St. Francis mm-hmm. and hearing you talk about some of these ideas. Do you, do you remember this? Oh, yes. That was that in walk? 2016. Is that when it was? 2000. Uh-huh. Okay. And beginning to hear how you have moved through much pain and suffering and healing and insight and all this wonderful stuff been cooking in you for, for years. And then this idea of a book. And here we are. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real book. (laughs) It is a real book. It is. Okay, tell tell people uh, what the book is about. Great. The book is called Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison. And the subtitle gives it away. Constant comparison, what I, I would say has been the probably the most profound struggle of my life. It's the thing that I that I've struggled with the most over the years. Um, and something that I realized I was doing only after my husband pointed it out to me. But that was a long time ago. It was in the year 2000 that he pointed it out to me. And after that, I began trying to make some improvement, trying trying to get some help, and had really tough sledding. Most of what I found was, in the end, not helpful. It was, it was real um, inspirational at times, and sometimes it was real um, spirit-lifting, almost cheerleading, 
Um, but in the end, it ended up being pretty trite and um, not not actually helpful for for breaking away from the comparison trap. And I finally realized that this was something that was really an obstacle to me to embracing the love of God and the love of my brothers and sisters. It was really getting in the way. So I had to I had to get some help. <laughs> and finally I realized other people were struggling with it too and there wasn't as much help to be found as I would have liked. So now I'm hoping there's some help to be found. <laughs> there is. There is. You've birthed you've helped birth the help, a good yeah. help. Um, I have admired something in you for years that you tell on yourself. Oh, <laughs> right. The com- I mean, I've heard you mention things about comparison for a long time, and yeah. and you say things that they're very common. They're human experiences, and particularly mm-hmm. we can talk a little bit about in our day and age at how this has just gotten ramped up. So you'll you'll make these kind of helpful confessions about how you struggle with comparison. So I think mm-hmm. I want to I want to start here. When did you begin to name it, call it out as a problem? Right. Only after my husband pointed it out to me because I honestly didn't realize I was doing it. I was doing it habitually, but I had never observed it in myself. And um, I actually tell the story in the first chapter of the book about a conversation that I had with my husband. Um, I had spent some time with three friends going to a, um, a Bible study. And the evening after the road with them across town to a Bible study, that evening, I was telling my husband, Jack, about that. And as I was, he thought I was telling him about the Bible study. I was actually telling him about my three friends and all the good things that I had observed in them during that trip across town, right? That, that one was so friendly and kind and one was so very organized and another was just beautiful and had such grace and um, beautiful bearing in her physical person. And he finally stopped me and said, you do this all the time. You're always noticing the outstanding attributes of other people and comparing yourself to them. And I was really defensive, Nathan, at first when he pointed that out to me, because I thought, well, of course I notice the good attributes (laughs) of other people. You know, I mean, I love people. I should notice. (laughs) But then he went on to say something that haunted me for a while. He said, you have created for yourself a mythical composite woman out of these good attributes. And that's what you expect yourself to be. That's when I named it. Only under, um, I hate to say pressure because he was really gentle, but he was firm and insistent that I was doing this habitually. And the reason he was firm and insistent was because he could tell it was hurting me. And he he wanted that to stop. Um, honestly, I didn't really make any any progress at all until I later realized it was not just hurting me; it was hurting my relationships. It was really hurting my relationship with my husband, with my children, with my friends. It it was getting in the way, and um, 
finally ended up, literally ended up in um, a therapist's office in a time of crisis. Um, things had sort of crumbled in, in in my life, and I knew I needed help. And that's when I really named it because we sort of peeled back the layers and realized that that the roots of this were in my childhood. And doesn't that sound so trite? No, it's all my childhood. <laughs> she says as she lies on the therapist's couch. <laughs> Wasn't lying on the couch. But but my therapist really did help me to to get to to drill all the way back to the bottom of it and then start start getting to the root of everything and then start looking for some healing. Mm-hmm. So been working on it a while now. <laughs> There's some miles on this book. It's a lived book. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. The, it, I mean, we, we can easily recognize, I think, the setup of comparison, particularly when you're taking traits that you have no control over. You know, if right. I could just be taller or if I could just have this intellect or whatever. Um, it, it's a setup for being miserable and self-hatred. But this piece of, of it hurts my relationships, isn't just about mm-hmm. me. Could you say a little bit about how that ties into relationship? Yeah, well, at least for me it did because what had happened was that I was, on account of this constant comparison and, and always coming up short, I had really developed a distorted view of myself. And in so doing, I had projected my, my insecurities about me. I had projected those onto the people around me. So because I felt unlovable and unacceptable, I assumed that others did not love me and did not accept me. Even when they gave evidence that they did love and accept me, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't their fault. It was, I was projecting onto them. And later I came to realize that I was also doing that with God. I just, I was letting my feelings of being um, not not unloved because I I always knew intellectually that God loved me, um, but because I felt so unlovable, I, I had trouble really really getting that from uh, sort of a general knowledge that God so loves the world to the fact that God actually loves Rochelle or that that God ac- accepts us as we are to God actually accepts me and is fond of me and likes me and wants to be around me. So I think it really is, it pretty much is projection, but that gets in the way of relationships. I mean, thank God that um, his love is so steadfast that he, he doesn't let it get in the, in the way of his relationship with me. Right. But all the humans in my life, (laughs) (laughs) It is a real struggle when you're when you're constantly assuming that no one could actually love and accept you. Yeah. That that makes for some real relational difficulty. Yeah. And so I was I was kind of a black hole. I always needed affirmation. I needed to be told I was loved. I needed to feel needed. I um, always felt like I was trying to prove myself. And the people around me loved me as best they could. But that gets tiring. <laughs> so it's rooted in this pervasive sense that I'm not enough in all these That's different right. categories. 
That's right. Yeah. And then yeah. that colors your relationship with God. That colors your relationship yeah. with others. Yep. It's kind of bondage yep. all the way around. That's exactly right, which is one of the reasons I like the subtitle of finding freedom from constant comparison, because it is a trap. The enemy of our souls takes this thing, comparison, which is a very useful tool in our world, and turns it on us and you know, works with the same lies that he's always been telling people, makes it a trap that can be really hard to get out of. Well, help us with, with this, because in one sense, comparison is good. Right, mm-hmm. and in other senses, it can be destructive. Um, mm-hmm. Is it good? Is it appropriate sometimes? I really think it is. After I began studying it, I realized that there are all kinds of comparisons that are useful and good, um, and and absolutely necessary. For instance, you know, when my son was in the hospital after open heart surgery. I mean, those doctors and nurses compared his physical characteristics, his vital statistics, they compared them to an ideal. And when what was going on in his healing body didn't match up to the ideal, they, you know, they, they fixed things. It's like that comparison was life-saving. And when we, when we find inspiration to, um, to learn new things because we, we, we watch other people do things and then we try to do things just like they do. I mean, that's a helpful comparison. You can learn from that or imitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes comparison is a really important tool in the pursuit of justice. You know, I think about, I think about um, those students at the Woolsworth lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, close to where I live. And they saw what was allowed for black folks and what was allowed for white folks. And they saw that they were not the same. They used comparison as a tool. And they finally said, we, we're not going to stand for this anymore. This is not right. And so eventually justice was served partly because Comparison was used in a good way. So it's a really important tool. And even social comparisons, the comparisons that we make when we, you know, look at ourselves and then look at other people, they can sometimes be useful. But those are the ones that I would say get to be really tricky. And here's why. Anytime we are comparing ourselves with other people, what we are doing in, in, in the very nature of it is putting ourselves on one side of the scale and putting someone else on the other side of the scale. And that's an isolating act. And I think that's where the problem comes when we isolate ourselves from others. You know, it's, it's sometimes said that comparison is the thief of joy. And I think this is why, because comparison is isolating and joy comes from connection. Joy comes from connection with God, first of all. You know, Dallas Willard said, a joy-filled God fills the universe. Um, and joy, we're told, is one is part of the fruit of the Spirit living in us, right? It's meant to be a hallmark of our life. That comes from connection with God. And in comparison, we're isolating ourselves and we're, we're, we're placing all the focus 
on ourselves instead of on God, or we are looking first at ourselves and then at the other person. So we're, we're, we're trying so hard to get assurance when actually we should have assurance because God gives it to us and connection to him fosters it. Um, so we're, we're struggling to, to have something that we could have if we really worked on the connection with God. And we're looking for the joy that we could have if we were connected to other people. And instead, we isolate ourselves and wish we had it <laughs> and mourn that we don't. I think that's the, the real problem with comparison is that it's so isolating. Yeah. Where is the line? Because like in one sense, I mean, you could make the case that you know, so much of our culture and society and economics is based on competition and comparing mm-hmm. one to the other. And there is a place where I see something, a, a quality, an attribute in another person, and and I see it and it serves as a mirror and I go, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this or that so well. And it can be a force to help me grow as a human being, right? When does mm-hmm. it cross a line into a helpful kind of, you know, I want to aspire to be more and then it become self-centered and isolating. I think that line is probably different for every person, honestly. Um, For instance, think about it, the Olympic motto, the the motto of the International Olympics is Citius Altius Fortius, faster, higher, stronger. (laughs) Those (laughs) are more, more, more. (laughs) So apparently the comparison really is is helpful to those athletes as they as they push for 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 doing more they know it's humanly possible because it's been done so they're trying to to achieve that and i think that line for them is probably different than it is for me um so i i would say when the line becomes isolating and when it begins to feel soul crushing and certainly when it starts pulling us toward the sin that can result from it. So I, I would say that comparison is not a sin. Comparison is a tool. But when it pulls us either toward envy and jealousy on the one hand or toward arrogance and disdain on the other, when I start feeling greater than or less than other image bearers, then, then I have ventured off into sin, and then you can know that you have definitely crossed the line. So where exactly that is, I think, is a pretty individual thing. But the more you do of it, the more you, you can get onto rocky ground. Mm-hmm. That is so helpful. The, the two sides of the coin, the destructive coin of, mm-hmm. like, I'm comparing, and you know what? I really do win. And then I can get to kind of feeling arrogant or proud mm-hmm. and looking down yep. um, or to go, I'm not. And then almost feeling a disdain or a like sense of what is that that I do to others of um, I want what you have or and, and then struggling to celebrate the gifts that mm-hmm. they have. Um, right, right. I mean, it's just so easy to lapse into either covetousness on one side or arrogance on the other. And both of those, I would say, are 
isolating things, right? So whether you feel better than someone or worse than someone, you're still pitting yourself against them. Connection is not found in either one of those takes. To recognize the withness that that, that God is with us and we can be with one another. God is for us and we can be for one another. I think this this is what God wants for us. This is what he made us for is this kind of connection and communion. Um, And comparison can really get in the way Mm -hmm. of connection and communion. That is such a helpful uh, litmus test of sorts, Mm -hmm. because this stuff is sneaky and it works its way in. But to pause and go, is this an isolate? Is this leading to isolation? Is this Mm -hmm. separating me from community and celebrating of others? Okay, what does that look like when I'm noticing comparison and I'm functioning in a really healthy, God-given way to celebrate the gifts and strengths of others? What does that life look like? Well, I think that it's an important thing to think about because, at least in, in, in my experience, the comparison led, as I said, to that distorted vision. It, so it distorted not only the way I thought about myself, but also the way I thought about other people and the way I thought about God. So um, when you start reaching some correction, I think you can begin seeing other people as fellow image bearers. So uh, of, of absolute value just at the very core, because they've been created in the image of God as brothers and sisters and as co-workers, co-laborers. So, um, you know, I'm really taken by the fact that um, the old Apostle John, whom I love because, you know, in his gospel, he refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. (laughs) How wonderful is that? That this is just what he calls himself. He understood who he was. But then later when he wrote the epistles and... um, Right at the beginning of the the first letter of so first John, the first chapter, um, he says to the folks he's writing to, this is the message that we've heard from him and share with you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's I think that's first John one five. But then in first John one seven, there's a verse we quote a lot, but I think we don't quite get maybe what it's talking about. The verse is 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, we talk about that second part a lot. The fact that Jesus's blood cleanses us from all sin, which is wonderful. But the first part of that same verse, he's referring back to that light. And says, if we walk in that light, then we have fellowship with one another. Not we use one another as measuring sticks, but we have fellowship. This is how we were made to be. We were made to be together, to work together, to worship together, to help one another Um and, and I honestly believe that we were made to be like that because God created us 
in his own image, which means we were created by the Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, God God in himself, as the old Puritan writers used to say, God in himself is a sweet society. God reveals himself to us in terms of relationship. And he created us in his image for relationship. This is the name of the game. So just going forward with this distorted vision of others, it just doesn't work. We got to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us and then to see our brothers and sisters the way God sees them and to realize that he made us to to work together. And what that means in reality, Nathan, is that I can celebrate the fact that you have gifts and talents that I don't have. Hmm. For so many years, I would look at your gifts and I would think, oh, why can't I be like that? So I used your gift as a way to condemn myself. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm using you as the yardstick, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to pick your outstanding attribute and I'm going to wish I were like that. But that's not what God intended us for. He intended us to all be part of the whole. And so the fact that you have a gift that I don't possess, well, that doesn't indicate a deficiency in me. That demonstrates the beauty of God's design. This is the way he made us. He made us to work together. And so often, Nathan, I hear people just truly sad and worried. People will say that they just don't feel like they're enough. You know, they're, 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 I'm just not enough. I can't, I can't be who I need to be. I can't do what I need to do. I'm just not enough. And what I would say to that is, Oh, yes, you are. You are absolutely enough. In fact, you are more than enough. You are plenty to be you. But you were never intended to be alone. You were intended to be one part, and you are enough to be that part. With God with you, with the the Holy Spirit in your life, You are so much enough to be your one part, and then you can let me be my one part, and I'll be enough to be that, and together we'll do more. We were never never intended to be independent or to try to be self-sufficient. We were always intended to work together. Okay, I'll hush now. I can really get revved up on this. Oh, no, no, this is perfect. (laughs) Well, there you have it. We'll air the second part of the interview next month. In the meantime, I invite you to visit our website and read an excerpt from her book. Again, Rochelle's book is titled Mythical Me, Finding Freedom from Constant Comparison. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.